welcome to the King's Men Podcast. Changing lives for the kingdom of God. Becoming a better producer, protector, and provider for your family. Because pain is just weakness leaving the body. Exclusive insight and commentary for the Christian male. Change your life. Live better lives. Become a happy man. Roar like the lion you are. Now, let's get started. Yeah, we are back with the Kingsman Podcast. We are back. Turn down the music. Leave it going in the background. I enjoy that. A lot of other people don't, but I do. Keeps me focused. Keeps me going. Now, this week on the Kingsman Podcast, we're going to take a look at. We're going to take a look at some similarities uh, between the modern church, Chris, specifically Christian liberalism and neo-paganism. Whenever you look in the past, neo-paganism and witchcraft and things like that, there are always certain things that the pagans did. Uh, if you go to ancient history, the uh, ancient pro- uh, prostitutes of the old city of Corinth, this is the temple prostitutes that were there, and uh, we have uh, other instances of uh, witch, witches uh, doing orgies throughout history, things like this. This is neo-paganism, and I want you to start seeing this, uh, a certain pattern that's coming about in the modern church today that mirrors some of the things that neo-paganism has done uh, well into the past. So the, the big question today is how has the new age really crept into the church? Well, one thing, this is, this is the main thing of how the new age and neo-paganism has crept into the church. This is through this device that's called sentimentalism. David Hume wrote a long time ago in his treatise of human nature, he said, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Now, what he is saying there is your feelings should trump even your reason. This is where we get, oh, you know, do whatever your heart says or follow your heart and all kinds of garbage like that. These ideas have crept into the church, whereas our worship is not about trusting and obedience. Our worship is about feeling good and being entertained. That's a huge difference. And whenever you look into the past through neo-paganism and prostitu- the prostitution that had happened during uh, those uh, ancient cults, it was about feeling good and being entertained. Wow, yeah. You, you, go, to a, you go to a temple prostitute, yeah, you feel good afterwards. <laughs> Now, the problem is, is that sentimentalism will always give way to hedonism and nihilism. Hedonism is, the, is this belief, this, this um, confirmed belief in your own mind, that pleasure is what life is all about. And we are bringing that into the church. We bring, we bring it into church because we say, well, you know, we're going to play these, these hip, new, cool Christian songs and we're just going to be up there entertaining you with a praise band. You don't really, as an audience, have to sing or participate anymore. And this is the problem that we have in the modern church. This is sentimentalism. And how that creeps into, uh, into, the, into the world, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, uh, and covetedness, which is idolatry. That's Colossians 3.5. So sentimentalism is this idea that your feelings 
can rule over your own reason, your ability to think rationally. Now, that's what concupiscence, concupiscence is. Now, I don't subscribe to the idea that concupiscence is a strong desire. No, it is one that is being ruled by one's strong desires. And that is a real problem. In the early church history, um, there was a Stoic man that many of the early church historians believe was a Christian. But he was a Roman historian, uh, Masonius Rufus. And he wrote in his uh, book, Lectures, book six, he said, um, quote, the man who wants to live a godly life must not only learn the lessons which pertain to virtue, but train himself to follow them eagerly and rigorously. Now, the, the philosopher has to train both his soul and his body by enduring hardships and not giving in to the pleasures. But instead, we should, as, Ru as Rufus points out, accustom ourselves to cold, heat, thirst, hunger, scarcity of food, hardness of bed, abstaining from pleasures, and enduring pains. Now, the person who is practicing to become a philosopher must seek to overcome himself so that we don't welcome in pleasures and then we try to avoid pain. And so that he won't love living and he won't fear death. But he will... Uh, in the case of having money and things like this, he will learn to be content with the things that he has in life as a result of practicing these virtues. Also, uh, Augustine, now I don't agree with everything that Augustine has, has said in regards to, uh, you know, things like original sin. But they did give these kinds of things very close inspection in the early church. Now, Augustine wrote on, his, on marriage and concupiscence, he says, carnal concupiscence must not be ascribed to marriage. It is only to be tolerated in marriage. It is not a good which comes out of the essence of marriage, but an evil which is the accident of original sin. Now, I don't agree with him in regards to the things of the original sin, but what he is trying to explain here is how easily the marriage bed can be uh, perverted for different reasons. And many Christians, they do this today. And they, 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 have no, they have no idea that they're actually doing wrong. Augustine also wrote on the good of marriage, uh, page 104, he said, Intercourse of marriage for the sake of begetting children has no fault, and intercourse in the marital bed to satisfy lust has but venial fault. But intercourse in adultery for, or fornication is a deadly fault. It's very important that we understand this because today we're just seeing all kinds of things that, you know, there's, a, there's this idea of sexual liberation that is happening within our church. We, we forget the fact that if people are divorced, they shouldn't get re remarried because they will be committing adultery. But we don't see it that way anymore. We allow people to just come and go and we don't say anything. And we allow people to remarry. We, we allow all kinds of things that are happening in the church. Now, I, you, will, you will understand, I am, not, I am no longer subscribing to the modern definition of what marriage is. There is no way that we can live in a society where the government rewards women for divorce. 
And that's, that is what we have come to. Men no longer have the power in the relationship to maintain the relationship. They have all of the responsibility, but they have no power in order to do anything in the relationship. And this is what is happening. This is why we have well over 50% uh, divorce rate here in the United States. Plato said this, The price good men pay for indifference to public affairs is to be ruled by evil men. If you want to go out and you want to bury your head into the sand, you are still going to pay the price because you didn't do anything. Now, we'll get back into some of this, this idea of sexual liberation as well, but another thing that I want to point out that is reflective of paganism that exists in the modern church is relationship theology. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it say have a personal relationship with Jesus, okay? Now, there is an idea that you will have a, uh, a king and servant relationship. But for preachers today to come out and say, look, you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and then you, they end it there. They don't tell you what that means. This is an assumption based on the servant-master relationship that, uh, that is explained in scriptures. But the relationship theology builds more on top of the servant-master relationship than what the scripture outlines. It's, it's almost as though, man, Jesus is just your best, best friend and he's holding your hand the entire time that you're here. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is teaching, look, you want to be a Christian, you're going to take up your cross and it's going to be daily. And you're going to have trials, you're going to have tribulations, and you have to build perseverance, and you have to be diligent, as it says in Second Peter. You have to be diligent in following after virtue, and you've got to push through the hardships that are given there. Now, that's, the, the, and the thing is, nowhere in the, the Scriptures is saying that your brother will, in fact, help you. Now, in, it, it is the model of the modern church, it, it is the model of the biblical church that the brother should be there for you. But we know that a virtuous man must do things on his own as to the best of his ability. And God will test you in that manner. Now, this is like, you know, paganism of old. Paganism sought to create an entirely new culture, an entirely new uh, social structure. One that was the antithesis of the modern church, where we'd all get together, hold hands and sing kumbaya, so to speak, metaphorically. And through those feelings, uh, we, come, we, we come out of uh, a service feeling encouraged and enlightened, so to speak. Instead, uh, the Bible says, no, like it says in Second Peter, you need to build upon the knowledge that you're given in order to have virtue, in order to be diligent, in order to achieve grace. <clears throat> now, another way that it's that that uh, the modern church is like neo-paganism is that the message is watered down. In neo-paganism, and in which in uh, paganistic uh, societies throughout history, and even the modern church today, things can be very vague. They can just give you examples of things that just make you feel good, and this is a watered-down message. You get the Cliff's Notes version of things. And am I showing my age by, by knowing what Cliff's Notes are? Now, so it's watered down. Now, how does the message get watered down? Well, it gets watered down through personal emotions. The sermon becomes more about addressing personal problems and emotions than it does about scriptural teachings. There is an application for this kind of thing, but most of the sermons today are more about 
uh, psychological counseling than it is the application of scripture to a psychological problem or just the scripture itself. There's nothing wrong with saying, okay, there is a common psychological problem that is going on with the church members that you have and saying, okay, these scriptures apply to it and let me do an exegesis uh, on those scriptures to help you understand the problems that you're having. But unfortunately, no, we're, what we're doing is saying, uh, you have a psychological problem, just help, I'm going to help feed your emotions because you have this psychological promise through the scripture. And there's a distinction there. Now, another way that that happens in the modern church is conviction. We do not hold people accountable for the simple reason is it hurts their feelings. It hurts their feelings. Oh, it really hurts their feelings. Now, this is becoming more and more prevalent. In the 30-some years that I've been going to church, I haven't seen it this bad before. There is just even up to about 10 years ago, elders would still come up to the person and say, hey, you know, you're living in sin. You're not doing things the right way. We, we're here to help. We would like to you know, help you in any way to, to get through. But I think over the last 10 years of doing that, what I've noticed is the Burger King effect. The Burger King effect is, you know, I want it my way and I want it now. So whenever you approach somebody and you go to enforce biblical teachings on that person, just, just in as lovingly as possible, they get their feelings hurt and they just go down the road to the next church. Because people lack the conviction that is necessary to uh, make Scripture authoritative in their lives. Hurt feelings is not a justification to uh, not enforce biblical teachings. It's not a justification. We have men marrying divorced women whose ex-husbands, which are still their husbands according to John chapter 4, but we say nothing about it. Now, I'm not saying that the person cannot be forgive, forgiven for that, but the people are not told that what they are about to do is sin. They're not being told that. And this brings us right back to that, I, this idea in our society that there is sexual liberty. Now, paganism throughout history has always been marked with sexual promiscuity. Now, sexual promiscuity and paganism, according in the book, The History of Witchcraft and Demonology by uh, Montague Summers, he says, he writes this, he writes, In delirious tones they are yelling foul, mysterious words as they go. Har, 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 I'll tree, I'll tree, infernal sacraments, the dance of, of Acheron, the sweet and fearful fan, fantasy of evil. This is kind of the, he's, he's giving some of the recordings from the ancient writings of witnesses that have gone through uh, some of their sabbats. And, and their sabbats were their sacraments where they had to, to worship their gods during the time. And, and so this, this overly emotional yelling and screaming, and, 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 and it was mostly women that, were, that, was, that was doing this. <clears throat> and, and so it became this, this, and it turned into an orgy, is what it did. It turned into an orgy. He also writes here on page 110 of the History of Witchcraft and Demonology, he says, It is unknown how many children Giles Dureus devoted to death in his impious orgies. He's talking about Giles Dureus. He's a man who killed well over uh, 200 young men 
and he tortured them. He had sex with them, buried them in his backyard. He was very wealthy. He was uh, the champion of France at one time. So there was more than 200 corpses that were found uh, in the latrines of that was uh, on his home, home property. And and what this was is Giles de Reyes was a man that was obsessed with actually contacting the devil. And he did it over, he did this uh, sacrifices over and over and over again until it is said that he actually did get in contact and communication with Satan himself. But that brought, around, brought about his death as well. What this is, is, is sexual liberty, again, uh, in the church, where we, we think that we can go out on Friday nights and we can, we can have the hookup culture and just be forgiven come Sunday morning in the church. This, we are deceiving ourselves. We are not thinking through things. <clears throat> in John chapter 4, verses uh, 14 through 23, it says, But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that... I shall give him, shall be in him, a well of water springing up into eternal life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast said well, I have no husband. I'm going to pause there just for a minute when I'm reading through this. Jesus already knew this woman's history. She could have well lied, but she didn't. And she didn't lie about her past. But I want you to understand that all, in all of John chapter 4, this is the woman at the well. Never does he say that she accepted him. Never does he say, hey, woman, you're forgiven. Never does any of that happen. <clears throat> Never does, is there given a shred of evidence in that entire narrative that she repented of her ways. So you need to understand it. Here in verse 18, for thou hast five husbands, five, five husbands. Jesus knows how many men she's been with. And notice what Jesus calls those men that she's been with. They are her husbands. So he lays it right out. You are an adulteress. He continues, and he whom thou hast is not thy husband. In that sayeth thou truly. Say, so, yeah, yeah, you got five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't even your husband, is your husband, or isn't your husband. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. He told you all of these things, things that you that he that he shouldn't know about you, and now you perceive that he's a prophet. Well, that's that's good for you. Our fathers worshipped on the mountain, and they say that in Jerusalem the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when ye shall, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. That erring Samaritan woman did not retain, remain with her husband. Rather, she committed form, form, ah, fornication by many marriages. And that's according to Irenaeus. All right? Irenaeus wrote this in 180. He said that Samaritan woman erred 
She did not remain with her first husband, but she went out and had other men. This is similar to what Amos did. Now, let's go to Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. It says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith he hates putting away. He's talking about divorce here. For one covers violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye, not, that ye deal not treacherously. He's talking about the women that you have. He hates divorce. He does. In Matthew uh, chapter twenty, uh, chapter 5, verse 32, it says, But I say unto you that whosoever puts away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. <clears throat> and whoever shall marry her that is divorced commits adultery. So, ladies, <clears throat> it is proper for a man to put a woman away to divorce her because of adultery. But ladies, if you remarry, you're committing adultery again. The only option that you really have to not sin is to get to reconcile with your original husband. That is the problem that we have in our society today because we no longer think like this. Tertullian wrote in 207, he said, Christ prohibits divorce, saying, Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whosoever marries her who is put away from her husband also commits adultery. In order to forbid divorce, he makes it unlawful to marry a woman who has been put away. Can you imagine what the dating pool would be like right now if all of these women that are out there, if we men would refuse to marry women who are divorced or had a child with another man and she didn't marry him, okay? Now, you, now I know what, the, what, what women will say. All these comments will blow up uh, in, in the comments section saying, oh, you know, uh, this man is just abusive. He beats me. And uh, look, ladies, you want to sit there and you don't want to take accountability for the decision that you made, that you honored a man so much that you gave him a child or you slept with him. That is the greatest honor that a woman can give to a man. And yet, now you don't want to take accountability for the choice of the man that you slept with. That is really what the real problem is. And this is what we have come to here in the modern church today. Here in the Apostolic Constitutions, it says, Do not let it be considered lawful after marriage to put her away who is without blame. For he says, You will take care of your spirit. And will not forsake the wife of your youth. And the Lord says, What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. For the wife is the partner of life, united by God into one body from two. Whoever, or however, he who divides back into two that body that has become one, he is the enemy of the creation of God, and the adversary of his providence. Similarly, he who retains her who is corrupted by adultery is a transgressor of the law of nature. For he who retains an adulteress is foolish and impious. That's Proverbs chapter 18 he's quoting there. Also, he who cuts her off from her flesh, for she is no longer a helpmate, but a snare, having turned her mind from you to another. 
Now, in the Manosphere today, out there online, you have uh, Rolo Tomasi, you have uh, several different uh, content creators, Fresh and Fit, uh, uh, Abba and Preach, and all these guys are in the Manosphere, and they're, they're coming up with, really, their ancient ideas. These ideas existed before, that if a woman disrespects you and goes to another man, you got to get rid of her. That's it. And that's, here in Proverbs chapter 18, it says, look, you're a fool if you keep an adulteress. If you take her back, you are a fool. And the consequences do need to be real. We need to be real with people, real and raw. We cannot allow these things to happen in our society. We can't allow these things to happen in our church. And our society is falling apart because of it. And so these are the similarities that I see in the modern church today that mirror uh, neo-paganism. This is Christian liberalism. This idea that we could be progressive and still be Christians at the same time. It's wrong. It is evil. And it is a snare. It's a trap. It's a deception that is given to us. We must maintain the integrity of Christianity. We must. That's all I got for you today, guys. Leave your comments in the comment section below. Thanks for listening.